You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org.
Aristas. That's next week, right? Yeah. Love you, my dear. Let's yes. worship Jesus. Yes, sir. Doesn't, he doesn't look like that at all when he doesn't have a beard. Or when his beard's really short. I'm talking about, um... I'm forgetting the name. Jonas. His oh. name is Jonas, right? Yeah, Jonas. Are our mics still on? No, they're going to wait for the queue, and then once we give them the queue, I'll, I'll open us with just hello, greet everyone, and say a short prayer, and then ask you if you want to share your testimony. Good morning, Black Forest Chapel. It's good to see you all this morning. (laughs) If you're in the lobby, please make your way inside. You are welcome here. We are so glad to be here, and um, we, we really just want to worship Jesus with you this morning. That's our whole purpose for being here. Um, as I was talking to God last night, I, and actually, this, this happened as my wife and I were in prayer yesterday evening also. I, I really just felt one word, and that was, we're not here for an experience. We're not here to go away feeling all goose pimples and great emotions. We're, we're here to meet Jesus. That's, that's our reason. We can meet our friends. We can laugh. We can cry. We can enjoy hearing stories. But ultimately, our reason for being here today is to meet Jesus. And I pray that each and every one of us will leave changed as we're in his presence today. This song that we're going to sing first, you probably don't know it because I didn't know it until a week and a half ago. But um, I'm going to invite my wife to share a little testimony about the song um, and what it means to her. And then we'll try to sing this. Yeah, so the song is called You Are Worthy, and um, it has a sentence in it that repeats, it says, you are worthy of your name, and it kind of goes through a progression of names of God, Savior, Refuge, and then towards the end it says, Jesus, no other name, and uh, so we heard this song couple weeks ago and I said oh I love this song and Lucas said why <laughs> and I had to think about it for a bit and um, so I first heard this song in 2018 and I, I was coming out of a pretty difficult season and um, it had kind of brought death in some various forms uh, I had a very good friend of mine was rushed to the ER. The doctor said she had 24 hours to live. Uh, So it was very unexpected. And uh, I mean, she she defied the odds, but she only lived for one more year. And then she she died of cancer. And um, 
around the same time, uh, two of my my bosses or my leaders they announced that they were leaving. Um, three of my other close friends moved away, and uh, all of this it came just totally out of the blue for me. Uh, and it you know it brought my job to an end, um, like the the group I had worked with ceased, uh, my small group ceased. And, you know, a lot of the ideas I had had for the future. Um, and then I started having health issues, and I wasn't able to function like I had used to. So in this season, there was a lot of broken trust, a lot of hurt and loss. And um, I had lost some trust in my friends and my leaders. I lost trust in my own abilities and skills. Um, loss of trust in plans for the future. And I, I think I even lost trust in God's protection. So <laughs> the great thing is the story didn't end there, you know. <laughs> uh, after that, you know, there came this really sweet season uh, with my father where he was bringing back life to a lot of these areas um, of broken trust and loss and He's still doing that today. Um, there were so many people involved that showed me a lot of his tender love and care. Uh, but in, in this time of restoration, God was also showing me that I, I had put a lot of trust um, or just too much trust in the wrong place. Uh, I'd been relying on other things more than him. I mean, even if they were good things, like good friends. And, you know, the truth was that friends fail us sometimes, leaders fail us, our plans fail, our health fails, you know, I fail, we all fail, <laughs> but he doesn't. And so when I heard this song in the middle of all of this, I, there was just something inside of me that just came to life because I said, there's someone that's worthy you know, in our world, our reality, no matter what's going on, no matter what life looks like, there is someone that's worthy. There's someone that's not going to fail. We can fully rely on him no matter what's going on. Uh, and we can put our trust in him. And um, and he, he makes all of our other relationships able to. Because, you know, we keep failing each other and hurting each other even when we aren't planning to but then you know when we have someone in between the relationship we can keep loving keep forgiving we can have healing so yeah some of the words in this song he he stands by our side he conquers death forever so you know he enables our relationships to continue on the earth but also for eternity which is wonderful <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's not like I've arrived at all of this. I mean, just this last week, God's like bringing me back, saying, Heather, you know, come back. Where's your trust? Where are you putting your trust? And remember, there's no other name. There's no one else who's worthy. But he, he can. He can renew life in any relationship, in any situation. And, um, you know, where we experience death, or maybe where we bring death sometimes, his life comes, it cleanses, it restores, it strengthens. And um, 
No one else can do that. Only he can do that. So there's there's no other name. <laughs> so yes. Now we'll go to the song. Rumors of the son of man. Stories of a savior.
Before this next song, I'd like to just invite you to take maybe 20 seconds of silence. Just ask God what he wants to speak to you and what you can give to him.
Thank you, Father. This time, I'd like to invite you to worship with your offerings or your tithes. Um, those of you who'd like to do it physically here today, there's a box in the back. You're welcome to do that now. Also, if you prefer to do your giving online, you can go to blackforestchapel.com, and that is also available to you. You can feel free to stand or sit for this song. We're going to do a little hymn here. and um, Yeah, I guess as I... As I started to put this song together, I, I'm not real acquainted with Old English. <laughs> I don't know if you are, but there were a couple lines in the song that stood out to me, and I actually had to, I had to ask Jesus, what am I singing? The, <laughs> the first one was, not be all else to me, save that thou art. I like, man, I'm never going to probably say that in a conversation on the street. But <laughs> it really struck home that Jesus is my everything. It's just, uh, it's as simple as that. He's everything that I want, everything I need. And at the end of the song, there's also a line that says, heart of my own heart, whatever befall. Heart of my heart? That sounds like God, I'm trying to make my heart your heart. And it doesn't sound right. And he, I think God reminded me of when Adam said, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He was saying that to someone who was cherished, who was more precious to him than anything else. And so I think God was saying, heart of my heart is really you saying, I am the most precious, cherished thing that you have. So I encourage you as you sing this this morning, think about those lines. They've been a blessing to me.
heaven, we honor your name and worship before you. It's all for your fame. Your ways are all perfect, your words are all true. Jesus, Redeemer, worthy are you. High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall. Still be my vision, still be my wisdom, still be my treasure. Thank you, Lucas and Heather. Good morning, church. After a brief frozen interlude, we're back together, right? It's weird. Uh, I mean, it's, sometimes it's nice to have an adult snow day, if you will, but it's weird not being here with God's people on Sunday, and so I just kind of paced my house for the, for the hour that I'm supposed to be up here pacing around, because this is what I do. So, um, glad to be back with everyone. <clears throat> Let's pray as we open God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your presence. That the Almighty, Eternal, self-existent one, the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe, creator God, that you're, you're with us. We are your people. What an amazing privilege, what, something that we can't fully grasp, something that we don't maybe try to grasp enough. We don't sit and just think and contemplate about this life and why we're here and who you are and who we are because of Christ. And so thankful, Lord, that you have made a people for yourself. And because of Christ, Lord, we belong to you. If we put our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. We are sons and daughters of the God most high. And we are seated in the heavenlies and we are holy because you've made us holy through Christ. And we are sanctified. Lord, those are things that are true of us now. Even as we continue on this earth, Lord, we are being made holy and being sanctified in the likeness of your Son. And it's a mystery, Lord, and we don't fully grasp it, and we don't have to. We just trust you, and we thank you that you are good. So, Lord, we pray that our praises are pleasing to you this morning. Father, and that you would help us and our limitations to understand, to be fully engaged, Lord, to be devoted. It's something that's hard for us, and so we ask for your help. 
to focus in, to hear you as you speak through your word. And Lord, help us to obey what we hear. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 19. So we started the first seven or eight chapters a couple weeks ago. Exodus 19, we're going to finish 19 this morning. And uh, as we prepare to uh, engage and really hear the Lord as he gives his law to his people, and ultimately to us as well. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about... um, that the first several verses in chapter 19 were really kind of a formal covenant, a formal agreement that God was making, the Mosaic covenant was being established. And so there was some formality in the first seven or eight verses. So I'm just going to read those again and just remind us of um, kind of how God began uh, the covenant with his people here. It says, on the third new moon, so verse 1, chapter 19, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone on to the land of Egypt, so three months after they have left, On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So we saw the first eight verses, um, once again, really in the form and the style of a treaty in that time period. So there was was an actual um, date stamp, if you will. It was three months after they left Egypt. They were in a particular location, so there was an address. There was a formality of, of the people of God, so God named them, right? You shall say to the people of Israel and... um the house of Jacob. So there was formality there. And then there was a, um, an understanding, uh, you know, there's a preamble, then there's a section that just explains the relationship between the two parties, right? If God is to be their king and they are to be his subjects, what's the relationship look like? Well, God saved them. He delivered them from bondage and delivered them from, from Egypt. And he brought them out and he bore them on eagle's wings and he brought them to himself. So very relational, um, a very fatherly type of verbiage, but he brought them to himself. And so that's the, that's the established relationship. So now what's going to place place in this covenant is that God, as their king, is going to provide protection. He's going to provide for all of their needs, right? Just as he provided salvation and deliverance. And the people then would, God requires of his people obedience to obey his law, to be his people, to be a holy nation, and to be holy is to live up to God's holy standards. And so God says there are going to be conditions on this relationship. And if you, if, you, if you obey my voice and do what I ask, things are going to go well. And the people agreed to it. And they didn't even know what the conditions were yet, but they said, okay, God, we've seen you in action. We know who you are. At least we think we do. 
we're going to agree to this. And so they, they went into this covenant relationship together. And that has been established in this agreement. So now the king has made this agreement and he's made promises and the people have, have, have signed off on this agreement and said, we're going to be your people. And so God's like, okay, then I'm going to come for a visit. Right? So now the king's coming for a visit to see his people, to meet one another. And so this is where we leave off in, in uh, verse 9. So let's read 9 through 25 as we see God preparing to come and visit his people and what that requires of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the, words of the, uh, told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to look to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. <clears throat> what we see here is God visiting his people. The Lord came down. And one of the, the tough parts of this passage, or really trying to understand our God sometimes, is that he is completely transcendent, right? God is other. He is separate. He is exalted above. He has a distance from his creation because of his glory and his greatness. And so God is transcendent. At the same time, God is imminent. Right? As much as he's exalted above, he's intimately involved with his, with his people, with his creation. His, he has a nearness and a relatedness to his creation. Close personal, he has an intimacy. He's approachable. So we get this weird, God brought all the people to himself, right? He bore them on eagle's wings. He saved them. And he made all these prompts. And he brought them to himself. And yet... He's bringing them to himself, and then he's like, but stay back. Right? You're in danger, so stay back, and I'm going to set limits to how you approach me. Why? Because he's a holy God. He's completely other. He's completely separate. And yet he's near to us. And we see this, and we've talked about this before in Isaiah 57. 
Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Just listen to these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So this, this, this one, capital O, who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he dwells in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite in spirit, lowly in spirit. Why? To revive us, to revive the heart of the contrite. That's how much God cares. He's not a distant God who winds things up and sets it loose and then just goes on about his business. He's, he's involved to the point of sending his own son to die for our sins. So we have this transcendent God who's coming down for a visit. This, this king's coming for a visit, and he's making some, some rules, some protocols, some etiquette. And we can understand that. if <clears throat> We understand that there's dignitaries, heads of state for other countries who come to visit, and there's, there's all this pomp and stuff. If a king or a queen or a president is coming to a foreign nation, there's all this stuff that you got to do, right? Everyone's got to dress a certain way, and there's protocol and etiquette, and we get all that, and we think that's kind of... That's something that's elusive to us. We're not really part of those things unless that's our job. And, but really, we have the same thing if we have guests coming over for the first time, right? We're having guests coming over for dinner, and, and um, you know, we, we obviously want to make a good impression, but we want them to feel welcome, to be hospitable. And so we, we do a lot of things. We clean the house. Maybe we lift up the couch and shove a few extra things under there, whatever, depending on the time that's left, right? We always make food that we've never made before because why, why, why should we make something that we're confident in and that we know will come out okay? We, we, we make something we have never made before just because it's special. And we, we tell our kids, you know, um, these people don't know us, and wh- whatever you normally do, don't do those things, right? Or just stay upstairs or something. But, but there's, there's etiquette, there's protocol. There's so, we're making a way to welcome our guests. There's preparations to be made. And so the same thing's happening here. They're making their preparations, and God is giving them kind of the instructions. Here's, here's how I, a holy God, will come to visit you, my people, and here's what you got to do. And if you don't, there's consequences to that. And this is how serious it is. And this should give us a picture of his majesty and his holiness, his moral perfection, that he is the only one worthy of our praise. He's the only one worthy of glory. He is so perfect. He is so pure. You can't even look on him, otherwise you'll die. And so when God says he's coming down in thick smoke and thick clouds, it's because it's the only way he can reveal himself. So the glory of God will be on this mountain, but it's going to be shrouded in smoke and in clouds. Why? Because you can't look on him. He's too pure. And so he reveals himself, but at the same time, he has to conceal himself, too, for for protection. And so that's the first thing he tells Moses here. Behold, I am coming to you, in verse 9, in a thick cloud that you may hear when I speak with you, and you may also and may believe, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And we, all, we see this often in various Psalm 97. You can look these up on your own. Psalm 97 and Isaiah 6 and, and Matthew 17 at the Transfiguration. There's all, every time the Lord is, is, is coming down or present, these theophanies, right? He's in, he's in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. He's in the burning bush. He's, he's, he's shrouded. You can't see him directly. He's shrouded with clouds, with darkness, because of his glory. 
And what's, one interesting thing of why he's coming to visit, not just to make himself known to his people even more intimately, because they are now his people, and he's coming down for a visit, and he's going to speak his law to the people, the, kind of the core of all of the covenant obligations, the Ten Commandments. But he's also coming down to authenticate Moses' authority. That's the first thing we see in, in verse 9. I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the pe- that the people may hear when I speak with you. So, and, I, and looking through the rest of the text, what we always see is God saying something to Moses, and then he's the, he's the mediator. Moses saying that to the people, the people talking to Moses, and Moses talking back to the people, which it kind of makes sense. If you, if you think of a king, the subjects don't just to get, run around the palace and go talk to the king whenever they want. They have to go through the proper channels, right? There's protocol involved. And so Moses is the mediator that God has chosen, and he's obviously the forerunner to Christ, the, the better mediator. And so we see that happening throughout the story, but in this particular case, God wants to speak directly to his people. He actually wants to talk to them so that they can hear. So Moses will still stand in between them, but they're actually going to hear his voice. And we know this to be true. Um, if we look at... Uh, Verse um, chapter 20, so right next door here, chapter 20, verse 18. After God speaks, he's speaking all the words of the law, all right? And he says, now when the people, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And Moses recounts this story for the people 40 years later in Deuteronomy. He he recalls this story in chapter 5, so Deuteronomy 5, when he's giving the law again and talking about the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5 It says, verse 4, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. If you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. And at verse uh, 22, after he gives the Ten Commandments again, these words of the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man is still alive. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God, any more we shall die. For who is there of all the flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. So we have some contextual confirmation that God is speaking at least the Ten Commandments directly to his people. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain because they don't want to hear anymore. They're going to die. They, they can't take it. The voice of God and the thunder and the power of God's voice and the purity of his voice. They can't, as sinful man, they can't even hear it. They can't bear it anymore. So Moses, you go ahead and take care of this, right? We're good back here. And so 
God coming, the people may hear when I speak with you and also believe you forever. Part of it was that they might hear God's voice, but also authenticate Moses' ministry. And this is key because the people may at some point, even with hearing God's voice, they still sin against him. But if Moses just went up to the mountain and said, yeah, it's, a, it's pretty bad up there. I'm going to go up and take care of this myself. And he just, maybe Moses just wrote the Ten Commandments himself. He's this pretty smart guy, right? I've seen him do some stuff. I've seen him make some good decisions. He's pretty wise. He's been in the world. He kind of knows these things. And so in their minds, maybe, maybe they're just wondering that Moses, was he sitting up there? Okay, you shall not murder. You shall not murder Moses. No, I can't put, I can't put that one in there. Right? Cause, cause he was, they were going to stone him. He was already worried about those things. So, and I can't put, you shall not murder Mo- Moses. Now I got to crash. Like, you can't murder Moses. I can't put that first because they're going to think I'm, it's for me. So I want to make that one like sixth or something. Right? And let's put some other ones before. And in the back of their minds, they might be wondering, is this really from God or is this just man's law trying to control us? Because that's what they know from all the other, all the other nations around them. They were, they were under the bondage of the Egyptian law and the harshness of this, of this ruler, of Pharaoh, for f- over 400 years. And they saw him put an edict in place and put a law in place that broke their backs even more and took more of their privileges. And, and so God was authenticating Moses' ministry, that he is the voice piece of God, that he is the mediator, that all that God says following is from God. And so he speaks the Ten Commandments and the rest of it, all the, the life application of this core, these core ten laws, the life application stuff and the chapters to follow, they're going to believe him. They're going to trust his word because he's... He's hearing from God, and God is speaking through this man. So this is key. He's authenticating Moses' authority. And we, we do see that in the, um, in the transfiguration as well in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. So another presence of the Lord. The bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Hearing the voice of God, authenticating the ministry of Christ, listen to him, this is my son. So we're seeing a kind of a similar thing take place here. <clears throat> so, so the king's coming to visit, authenticating Moses' authority, making himself known to his people. He's going he's gonna, to, the, the wow factor here is just something that's never been seen before. Right. They've heard of other gods. There's, there's Baal and the, the, the Canaanite gods of, of the storm. So they understand that lightning and thunder and earthquakes and all these darkness and clouds, they, they represent other gods and they represent the fear right, of other gods that are in the storm and elements of, of nature and elements of storm. And God is bringing them all together in one place and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm the true God of all creation. And so God brings lightning and thunder and darkness and fire and clouds and smoke and earthquakes and trumpet blasts. It doesn't even say where the trumpet comes from. I had to ask that question multiple times. Where's this trumpet blast coming from? It's coming from the mountain. He didn't tell anyone else to go blow a trumpet. The, the, what we know is the shofar, where typical Jewish tradition you're going to see with Jewish high festivals and the coronation of a king. It would be blown as a, as a, kind of introduction or the close of something special. And yet there's this trumpet sound, this long blast coming from the mountain, from, from God himself. 
and it gets louder and it gets louder. So you have this incredible picture of power and majesty that we can't even comprehend. Can you, can you imagine this kind of power and what you would feel standing at the foot of this? We, we stand and in, in, we're in awe of Pike's Peak, right? And we see the wind and kind of the snow blowing up there. And we, we've driven up to the top of it before. And we understand its enormity. And we've, maybe you've been other parts of the world and the tallest mountains in the world. Maybe you've hiked some of them. Maybe you've experienced some of them. There's just this grandeur and this magnitude. And it makes you just feel small. And now imagine being at, the, at Mount Sinai and the, and the Lord coming down. And all of this stuff taking place and the whole earth shaking. And you're just sitting there trembling and you can't even be in the presence of God because he's so holy. And yet he's, he's allowing you to. He's calling you just to this point, but he's calling you near to him. If we were to drive up to the gate at Pikes Peak and we saw all that stuff going on, we'd probably just put it in reverse and just, yeah, I'm going to come back another day. I don't need a donut today and a, another magnet from, right? We would be scared. There'd be something wrong. We would run. The purpose of this was not to cause them to fear to run away from God, but to cause them to fear God, to have reverence and awe of this holy God, to understand who he is, to grow in their knowledge so that they might not sin. He's testing them so that they might not sin. It's an amazing picture. And so before he comes down, he gives them some, some protocol some things to prepare themselves, and hopefully we'll glean a few things this morning from, from God's word. <clears throat> the first thing that we see, if we look at verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So they don't actually get to go up the mountain, but they get to come up to the, at the, wherever the limit was set. And they don't have caution tape back then. I don't know what they're doing to make sure, like, is this rock okay or is it that one? Because I'm a little concerned right now. If I touch the wrong one, I'm going to die. I mean, that's how scary this is. That's how mindful they have to be of this holy God, how they approach him cautiously, one step at a time, right? And you know that you don't want to be first. I'm going to be in the second row to make sure the first row, they'll, they'll figure out the line, and then I'll be fine, right? I mean, you can, can you, this is human nature we're talking about. Nothing's changed. Can you consider where they're at and what they're thinking? This over 2 million people and kids running around. Your kids running. You're like, no, you're going to, you know, what are you, what are you supposed to do? There, there needs to be complete and utter focus on this holy God. Otherwise, someone's going to lose their life. <clears throat> so Moses went down and he consecrated the people and washed their garments and said to the people, be ready on the third day. Do not go near a woman. And so three things are taking place here that we see. Four things. The setting of limits. And if anyone touches the mountain, they're going to they're gonna die. And the way that they're going to die, their executioners can't even touch them. So you can't go up to them and kill them physically. You have to stone them from afar because they're, they're defiled now. They are unholy. You can't go near them. God came down on this mountain, the holy God, and so the mountain is now holy He's dwelling there. And if you touch that mountain, you've defiled yourself. You've disobeyed this holy God. 
So they either have to stone him or shoot, shoot them with an arrow. They can't go near them, otherwise they'll defile themselves. That's how holy he is. So they had to set limits. And Moses was supposed to consecrate them. We don't know exactly how he did that or um, what exactly took place with the consecration. We do know that typically to consecrate people um, related to their sin, there's an, there's an atonement based on sacrifice, right? There needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be blood to atone for sin. And so we know that the consecration of the firstborn males that was already instituted, that there was sacri- sacrificing of animals taking place. Right? And we see later on in chapter 24, there were the, the young men were actually, there, there's no established Levitical priesthood yet, but this is to be a kingdom of priests. And so there were young men that were actually offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. So it, it, it would make sense that Moses probably had a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins, but we don't know exactly what he was doing to consecrate them. Um, perhaps it was just to, to make sure they did the other things that God had uh, demanded his people do. So there was consecration. Consecration just means to be holy, to be sanctified, to be cleansed of your sin. And so there was, there, was a, um, there was one piece of it that needed to be, uh, that Moses needed to consecrate his people. The other was that they had needed to wash their garments. <clears throat> they needed to wash their garments. You might think, well, that's, that's no big deal because we got washers that have like 500 buttons on them and we can just press it whenever we want. You can, even if you, your washer goes down, you can go to a laundromat and there's a group of people, but you got well over 2 million people that have trouble finding water. I don't know. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's not the easiest thing to do. And why do they need to wash their clothes? What's the purpose? Well, clothing represents typically the clothing will, the outward appearance, outward clothing really represents, especially in their time, the, the, the inner spiritual condition of a person. Right? So we see this when, when someone is, is in mourning, they're grieving or they're, 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 they're repentant of their sin, they're humbling themselves before God. What do they do? They put on sackcloth. Right? We always hear sackcloth and ashes. Why do they do that? Because it's, it's, it's a really coarse kind of material made out of goat hair usually, and it's very uncomfortable. It's an outward expression of what's happening inside. Right? We, we're, we're uncomfortable. We, we, we don't want to be comfortable right now. We want to grieve. So there's ashes involved and sometimes dust, and there, there's, there's outward things taking place that will show the Sometimes they would tear their clothes out of grief and out of loss. So these, these garments, um, washing their clothes was a symbol of their need for sanctification, their desire to be cleansed of their sin. And we understand that to some degree, right? The way we dress sometimes tells us how we feel inside. If you're really depressed, you've been, maybe you've been fired or there's relational discord or there's something else, we tend to just put on sweats and eat a whole pizza. Like that's an outward expression Something's wrong inside, and then we use our shirt for a napkin and that kind of stuff. Right? That's that's the that's one area that we, we understand that then, right? But if we're going out with friends, if we've been invited to a dinner party, if we if we feel if, if our day's going well, we are anticipating having a good time, we're anticipating fellowship and friendship and good food, we might dress up a little bit. We might actually shower, we might actually shave, right? In this COVID world where we're just quarantined and can live however we want. We can we actually get cleaned up and we go out and we 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 look the part. And so clothing made a big difference to them. And we also see in the scriptures that, that white robes and white clothing is a sign of what? Purification and righteousness and worthiness. 
Jesus' clothes were brilliantly white in the transfiguration. The saints in Revelation are usually depicted as wearing white robes or white clothes. Why? They've been washed by the blood of Christ. They have been made pure. They're, they're justified before holy God. And so this was an outward expression, but it was something to be mindful of, to think about. I'm washing my clothes, and it's not an easy thing, and I'm out in this dust and this dirt constantly, and I've only got two days, and then there's a long line here to get stuff clean, and, and I really can't get this out, and this is really just stuck on here. What am I supposed to do? The Lord wants us to wash. And it's, just a, it's, it's really meant to help them understand the, the depth of their sin, the need for salvation, the need to be cleansed. And so this was, a, this was a sign of sanctification. And so they needed to, to wash their garments even after Moses consecrates them. This is their part. They're supposed to participate in their sanctification. And they're supposed to be ready and do not go near a woman. And you might think, well, what's that, what's that all about? <clears throat> well, there was, a, there was a, a call to abstain from sexual relations with, with a husband and a wife. Not, not to go near, not to have sex with your, with your spouse. Not that there's something shameful about it. Not that it's unpure between a husband and wife. That's, that's not what this is about. It's about denying oneself. It's a form of fasting, really. We're right now kind of in the, in the Lenten period. Those of you who follow the liturgical calendar. And so the Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. And oftentimes people during the, the Lenten season will, will fast from something as a way to um, grow in personal devotion, to focus in, to make God their priority as the kind of the anticipation of the resurrection Sunday that's to come. And so I, I used to, <laughs> as, a, as a young believer, um, you know, we, we maybe would choose something. People choose caffeine or, or chocolate or whatever they might do, and depending on your um, the things that are important to you. And one year, I remember I was in my early twenties, I think. I uh, I, I gave up um, March Madness, college basketball, because that was important to me, and I liked watching college basketball. Right, so okay, Lord, I'm not going to watch any March Madness for the whole season, so that I can just spend time with you and and it. it I remember going over to someone's house and they had the game on. So I had to sit in the other room and just sit and stare at the people and just listen to the game because the game was on and they weren't going to turn it off, right? And this was my sacrifice to the Lord. I'm not going to watch the game, but I'm going to listen to the game. I'm going to lean in and just really try to hear what's going on. And I wonder who's winning. And I wonder about, right? That was just, it was, it was, a, I was trying to do something, but it really wasn't effective. I wasn't really devoting myself to the Lord. And so God didn't say anything about their national sports or I mean, he, he said, do not go near a woman. Because like, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty natural desire that we have, right? It's something that's, that's really related to the flesh. It's pleasurable. There's a lot of good involved there. But God said, I want you to devote yourself to me fully. And so abstain for these three days from being with your husband or being with your wife. And it reminds me of... Uh, um, I told my son there'd be a Rocky analogy in here or illustration, but it reminds me of the first Rocky movie. And, and if you guys aren't sports fans, none of this is going to be helpful for you at all. But this is where my brain goes. <clears throat> but in the, in the original Rocky movie, Mickey Goldmill, who's Rocky's trainer, Mick, um, a very politically incorrect, um, just um, his demeanor was such that uh, you're endeared to him because of how he yells and how he kind of grumbles and growls, right? But he's a good trainer and he loves Rocky. And, and so um, Rocky is dating Adrian, who will be his future wife. And 
And Mick says, you need to lay off the pet shop dame. Right? That's his verbiage. And, the, and, and Rocky's like, why? He's like, because women weaken legs. Right? That's, that's Mick's advice. And women weaken legs. And he's like, what are you talking about? And then Mick gets mad. He's like, why don't you let her train you then? And he's like, okay, I'll lay off. What was the purpose of that? What, what was it? it was just some arbitrary kind of line drawn that Mick was angry because his life didn't work out and he wanted else to be happy? Or what's the purpose of that? Well, if you think about Rocky's life, he was the, the movie opened. He's in this gym. He's a nobody fighting nobodies. He's a ham and agger, as he said. I mean, I think in the timeouts and as he's walking, he's smoking cigarettes and people are throwing stuff in the ring. It's just, it's like the worst possible environment you can be in. Very depressing. Very discouraging, a career that's been really lost to age and um, really no notoriety, nothing to speak of for his life. And now he gets this one in a million shot, and he's going to be on the world stage fighting the greatest fighter in the history of the world, Apollo Creed. Now he's going from this, which is nothing, where he doesn't even have to train, he doesn't have to really do anything, this discouraging environment, to the, to the biggest stage in the world, fighting the best fighter in the world you think that that would require a little bit of sacrifice. Things might need to change with this training regimen. There might need to be a little bit more focus involved. There might need to be more intentionality. And so all the distractions of life, all the carnal pleasures, all the things that he, all those things need to go away so he can focus on this big event, this one big fight that will change his life. And so when Mick's saying, you got a women weak in legs, he's just saying there's a time and a place and right now you need to devote yourself. And for those of you who think that's a terrible illustration and you'd rather go back to the Bible, I, that's okay. I'm with you. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, has a similar, similar admonition for us when he's talking about the principles of marriage. In uh, seven, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So he's talking really about the... there's, There's a... When we become husband and wife, there's a oneness, right? We become one flesh. And part of the expression of that and part of the the way that we help maintain the oneness is is the most intimate uh, part of a marriage, which is sexual intimacy. There's nothing closer than that. And so that's, this is a good thing. We shouldn't deprive ourselves of those things. It, it, helps to, it helps to maintain oneness. It helps as an expression of our oneness. It helps us to have our hearts closer to one another. And so that's a good thing. It's, there's nothing shameful about it. There's nothing bad about it. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. So we're not to deprive one another. Our bodies don't belong to our own self anymore. They belong to our spouse and vice versa. Except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so Paul's saying, don't deprive one another. This is a good thing. You need to be intimately involved. You're your husband and wife. You're one flesh. Don't deprive one another except, perhaps, by agreement. This is not unilateral. By agreement. For a limited time, just for a time, just for a season, you might devote yourself to prayer. There's an idea here of fasting. There's an idea of devotion. There's an idea of focus. 
And like I said, with God setting these limits for his people, and, and, and this, the, the holiness of God coming down on this mountain, and they need to be consecrated and atone for their sins. They need to wash, wash their garments. This is just another act of fasting, of devotion, to focus on me, all right? not on all these, these, these worldly things. I need your complete and undivided attention. And so maybe it was date night for a couple million people, and they're thinking, oh, man, this is, this is date night, right? And they're wondering if their spouse is in the mood, and God's like, no, 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 don't worry about mood. Worry about mountain, right? It's all about me right now. All those things go away. Focus on the Lord and the Lord only. Devote yourself. It's a form of fasting, so there was cleansing of the garments and abstaining from sex and consecrating the people and setting limits and warnings. And then we see this amazing picture of God coming down, as I already mentioned. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. So not just not singular, just this constant barrage. And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So this third day came, and you can imagine the day one, they're washing their clothes, and Moses is consecrating them, and they're, 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 they're being mindful of God's word here. They're not engaging with their spouse sexually, and so they're, they're focused on all, they're, they're watching these limits, and they're trying to figure out well, what's God going to do. He's, he's, he's coming. This anticipation is building, and they're, they're completely and utterly focused on him and their own sin, and, and they're remembering what God did in Egypt, and it's an amazing picture. And then God came on the third day, just like he said he would. And this is the picture that they got. And they, they're at the, the people in the camp, they trembled. Can you imagine that picture? Can you imagine just, have you ever been nervous about something? Just maybe public speaking or nervous about meeting someone for the first time? Or maybe you're going to be a guest in some, in some high-level meeting where there's people that are really important. And all, I, mean, I don't know what makes you nervous, but have you ever just kind of trembled before? And to see this power and this majesty and this might of this God coming down on this mountain, this transcendent God that can't be known or understood. <laughs> he's unsearchable. And yet he's revealing at least some of his glory to his people. And they trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. I can't imagine that picture, how slowly they must have walked, how much in awe. I mean, if you've ever been to a city in the big buildings, you kind of get vertigo, right? There's the power that's present. And the f- Have you ever been to a fireworks show? I, I think we've all watched them to some degree. Sometimes we sit at a far because we don't want to deal with traffic when we're done, so we drive and we park somewhere. And they're, they're powerful, they're good, the great display, really enjoyed the fireworks and... But if you've ever gone and just been right in it, right, right near where they shoot everything off, and we've done that before, and we've, I've, you just sit in the lawn chair, you sit on the blanket, and it's, they're just bursting above, and it's just, it's just hitting you in the chest. And it's just, you feel all of that, and you feel so much smaller, and you don't want to get any closer, right? It feels a little dangerous. I can't imagine what this actually felt like. The mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It must have felt like it was just going to explode, the presence of God. How fearful they must have been. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And then God spoke. 
trumpet grew louder. Moses spoke. God answered in the thunder. The Lord came down to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses. Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And this whole time, God, three different times in this section, warned Moses, don't let the people look. Don't let them break through. Why would they want to? Right? Is the first question. Why would you want to break through? But it's interesting how whatever the Lord does reveal to us, for some reason, it's, it's never enough. Part of God's goodness is in what he reveals to us, and he's revealing his law to his people, and he's revealing enough of himself and his glory. That's all they need to know. That is good. Everything else is mystery, and that's also good. But we have a problem with mystery. We don't like it. We want to know everything, right? We're curious, but oftentimes to our own detriment. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. The secret things belong to God. And when he reveals to us, those are good things, and they belong to us, and we're, we're to walk in those things. And we saw this in Exodus 3 when Moses, the burning bush, a, a much smaller version of the theophany, if you will, but nonetheless very powerful. And God's speaking out of this bush that's not being consumed. And what does Moses do? He's fascinated. What does he start to do? He wants to turn. He wants to look. He wants to see who this God is. And God's like, no, Moses, don't come near me. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I've revealed enough to you. You don't need to know anymore. And the people, God knows these people. And even Moses is like, you already told us we can't come up there. But three times he tells him, don't let the people break through or I'm going to break out. Right? Don't let them break through. And, and I was thinking about this and how does this apply to us today? We're not, we're not happy with mystery. God has already revealed to us the the problems of sin and the solution to sin is Jesus Christ. The gospel is very simple. And God has already told us about suffering in this life and the things that we don't quite understand. Suffering is just one of those things. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a result of sin. There's consequences to sin. We can be sad about that. God also uses suffering for our sanctification. He uses us to grow. Part of our suffering is that we don't like to have sin pulled out of our life. We don't like God to tell us what to do. And so we suffer because we're sinful. And God is working on us. There's, there's lots of reasons for it. But we're never happy with those answers when God just says, just trust me. Often God's answer is, I will be your comfort. I will be your peace. I will be your strength in the midst of this. But I'm not going to always tell you why you're going through this. Why, Lord, do I have this disease? Why, do I, why did you take 20 years of my life? Why don't I not have this, this job? Why am I financially strained? Why, why is this happening? Why did I lose this person? Why is this person you know, angry at me? What, why, Lord? And he's not always going to tell us why. And every time we try to look and we try to, we try to understand something that is a mystery that only God knows, it's the, it's the secret of his will that he has... He is engaged in our life. Sometimes he'll, he'll tell us, but oftentimes he won't. And he'll just say, do you trust me? I will bring you comfort. I will bring you peace. Just walk with me. And so he's telling the people, do not come. Do not come to me. And because of his holiness, they would be killed. Verse 
as we, as we leave today and we consider this holy God, this majestic God, this amazing God, this eternal God, this, this self-existent one, this great I am, who's the same God today, how do, we, how do we do this? Because as much as God is transcendent, we live in an age where God is more, we like the imminent God. We like the relational. We like the friend of sinners, Jesus. We like the Jesus is Savior, but not that Jesus is Lord. And when we look at the picture of Isaiah and Isaiah 6 and the, the throne room of God and this, the train of his robe was filling the temple and there's smoke and, and, and Isaiah is just, he's, he's lost. Woe is me because he saw the glory of God. He can't be in God's presence because of the holiness of God. But then we come to Hebrews chapter 4, and there's still a throne involved. Hebrews 4, 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Here we're supposed to draw with confidence drawn near to the throne of grace because it's, it's God's grace, but it's still a throne. He's still majestic. He's still worthy of our praise. But because of Jesus, the great mediator, because Jesus took our sins upon himself, because he atoned for our sins by his blood, because he saved us, we now have access to the throne of God to pray. We can now cry out to God in a spirit of sonship, Abba, Father. We have this relational, this amazing intimacy with the Father that we would never have had before Christ. And yet he's still a holy, transcendent God. So how do we do this? I think, how do we prepare ourselves to meet with God in every aspect of our life? Sunday morning worship, how do you prepare yourself to come meet with God? Not that you haven't already met him in your personal devotion in the morning, but how do you come to be with God's people? Do we come flippantly and casually and there's just with, with a sense of entitlement and where's my seat and where's my coffee and this is too long and this is always too long and why does he, why does he stop now, right? And I got lunch plans and I want to get out of here. I did my obligation. I need to, no, or do we come understanding what we're doing here? That although in this place with this many people, our cries to the Lord and our worship to God is a faint cry if you think about the entire universe, and yet that's pleasing to him. That is our praise to our Father. And I came in here this, this, this I was in here um, Friday, but I was in here yesterday, and I, I was in here just praying and, and walking around, and I had a terrible week. It was a horrible week. It was one of those weeks where I just felt like I didn't, I didn't feel that presence of God. I felt disconnected. The word of God just seemed kind of dry, and I understand it, but I don't really feel it, Lord. And Not that we have to live on emotion and all the time. That's not the point. God's truth stands, even when we don't feel it. But then I began to sit down, and I just, I just read through this again, and I looked at this picture and tried to imagine this mountain and standing before this holy God and thinking of our sin and how much it separated us from God. And that we can't, we can't work our way to him. He has to come down. We can't go up. And when I thought about that, and I thought about our Savior who came, and God's, his plan to save us is to send his own son, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, to die on a, on a cross, a horrible death, to be mocked and ridiculed and crucified, and that by believing and putting our faith in him, this, this gift of God is given to us, and we are made his people, and we have access. The veil has been torn, and 
We have access to the throne of grace. We can come with confidence to our heavenly father. And yet he's still this glorious, majestic creator God that, that is transcendent, that is other, that will never understand. And when I sat and started thinking about those things, I fell to my knees and I just, I just wept before the Lord. And I'm so thankful. But you know what? It, it took me desiring to know more. It took me not being happy with just the mundane and not just going through the motions again, Lord. It was, there was something about it that there was, there was a, a moment of repentance and sorrow and, and joy. And there, these were all wrapped up in a moment just in God's word where he just, his Holy Spirit just hit me and revealed himself to me. And broke my heart for my sin at the same time with this great rejoicing coming out of my heart for my Savior. And those are things you can't always explain. And how does this all fit together? It doesn't. Not in our own minds. But this is, this is our God. And this is our journey. And this is how we walk with him. But we need to prepare ourselves and come before him and make room and make space and be quiet and listen and open God's word. And if we don't do that, the noise will just drown it out. So we need to consecrate ourselves. Setting it, we need to purify, putting aside our sin. Coming before a holy God. Fasting from things. Turning the TV off. Putting our phone away. Putting these things away so we can focus on this living God. And if we do that, you're gonna, I hope that you'll find that your time coming on Sunday worship, going to a Bible study, going to youth group, your time of personal devotion will grow as your love for the Lord grows. We've read before, you've memorized that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Psalm 111 and Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I would ask that you go this week and you, and you just sit with that. That the fear, the reverence and awe of a holy God is the beginning of wisdom. If we're asking for wisdom, if we don't know what to do, this is where you begin. You consider your holy God, who is other, who is separate. And you tremble before him, and you, f- you have reverence for this majestic God, and you have awe again for the living God. And you know what it does? It resets all of your priorities. Your whole day changes. All the temporary things of, light, of life, they just fade away in the eternal glory of God. All these temporary things, they're, just, they're not there anymore because of the eternal God that's before you. And then you have the wisdom you need to make good decisions, to walk in this life because of who your God is. This knowledge of God, it changes everything. It transforms us. Our priorities become clear. Stop, stop setting your own time frame. Your own, you, we always set our own agenda when it comes to God, and we need to be on his time. What does God want me to do? How am I to approach him, this holy God? How am I to worship him? Be a people of God's word, learn, walk with him, set aside time, be quiet, fast, pray, and God will change you. He will cause you to tremble before him and at the same time rejoice because of your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your awesomeness, for your greatness, for your otherness, that you are separate, that you are holy, that you are morally perfect, that you are eternal, that you have secret things that we're not allowed to look at, Lord. 
because you are good. And there are plenty of things that you reveal to us, Father, that we are to not only only understand and read and study, Lord, but to obey so we might be your people. Thank you, Lord, that you desire worshipers, (laughs) that we might worship you in spirit and in truth of who you really are. Part of our problem, Lord, with worshiping is if we don't know you, if we're not growing in our knowledge of you, then, we, then our words fall flat. We don't mean them. We're trying. So help us, Lord, to know you more, to fear you, to have reverence and awe for you, a holy God, to thank you and to honor you, Lord Jesus, for being our mediator, for taking our guilt upon yourself so that we might be justified before a holy God and now we have access to the throne of grace. That as much as you are a king, the king of the universe, holy and majestic, as your children, we can approach you with confidence as our father. It's, it's an amazing mystery. Help us ask your people to worship you this week, that that might change everything that we do. We might gain wisdom from our fear of a holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all stand as we sing one final song. and We come to the base of this mountain that Mike's been talking about, this holy God who's so above all. Let's also try to bring our minds to that place where we submit to Jesus. He's no less that holy God. He's no less that sovereign, awesome God that we should be trembling in his presence. But he makes such a beautiful way for us to come. So let's sing this song together.
Above all powers Above all kings Above all nature And all created things Above all wisdom And all the ways of man You were here before the world began Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders, the world has ever known. Above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what. above all. You be blessed with that thought as you go into your week. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Jennifer Bisher from Black Forest Chapel's Missions Committee here. Um, Just a reminder, next Sunday... Um, John Gabriela Barstead will be uh, joining us to just give more information about their ministry to the Muslim world. Very exciting ministry. Please plan to be at the service, but also to stay afterward for a time of fellowship and food. And we're going to lay hands and pray for them afterwards as well. Um, Just a wonderful time to really get to know them as people and learn a lot more about their ministry. Um, I want to thank Heather for her testimony this morning. A testimony is such an important thing. It's a formal word, but basically it just means telling people what God is doing in your life. And it is really encouraging to hear that, so thank you for sharing with us this morning. Well done. Um, Another thing, just a reminder, if you go to Black Forest Chapel's website on the missions page, You'll notice that a couple of our missionaries are represented in a little bit odd way. John and Gabriella, no last name. The Doan family are just the D family. Well, there's a reason for that. John and Gabriella served in the Middle East for sharing the gospel. They were under the threat of death. They literally were in a church bombing. Gabriella was significantly injured, hospitalized. 
had a long recovery. They cannot go back to that area of the Middle East because they'll probably be killed. So we don't put their name out on the website. Since we don't do that, please make sure that you never post anything about our missionaries on social media, not their photos, not their specific information, because for some people it can mean a loss to ministry, like the Diaz's or the Dunham's, but for the Dones and for the Barstads, it could literally mean their life. So just be mindful of that. Hope everybody plans to stay next week. Thank you. And one more announcement. Um, so what, what do we do here Tuesday night? Youth group, middle school, high school ministry. Raise your hand nice and high if you come Tuesday night. Adults and, and, and youth. Hi, come on. Hey, nice. Amy, I'm looking at you. There you go. Okay, everyone, nice and high. Okay, look around the room. So that's about close to half of who, who is here Tuesday night. We're up to... Um, Nearly, you can put them down now. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, we're up to nearly 50 kids that are here Tuesday nights and then a handful of volunteers to help out. Um, we are going to have a volunteer meeting in two Sundays, so right after the service. So next Sunday will be the mission time, and then the week after that, we'll have the um, uh, volunteer meeting. Anyone that is interested in learning about what we do, maybe you have an interest in helping with the upper room ministry, show up. So we'll try to have some food for us. We'll probably meet in here, I think, and that would be great. Good. If you have questions about that, see me. Thank you all, church, for being here this morning. It is great to see everyone. Hope you have a great week. Bye.
We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.